This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast, an interview show produced by the Ayn Rand Institute that deals with issues related to public policy, including science, environmentalism, economic policy, the law, foreign policy, and health care. I'm Amanda Maxim. And speaking of healthcare, I'm sitting down in our Irvine studio with my colleague Rita Parnabasu. She's a writer and researcher here at the Ayn Rand Institute, and she specializes in issues surrounding healthcare. So, welcome to the program. Thanks, Amanda. Glad to be here. So, I heard that last week you had a chance to speak with an expert on healthcare. So, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's right. I had the chance to speak to Sally Pipes. She leads the Pacific Research Institute, which is located in Northern California. Uh, she is just, in my view, an expert in Obamacare, and she's a leading proponent of getting government out of health care. One thing that she in particular, uh, you know, I find valuable in her work is her experience with the Canadian health care system. She, in fact, calls herself a refugee of the Canadian health care system. And definitely, I think, in our discussions on health care policy issues in this country, we tend to compare a lot to other countries. Canada being our neighbors is, you know, an obvious comparison and people are always trying to figure out which, which country has the better healthcare system, Canada or America. And I thought, who better to talk to about this than someone who lived in that system, experienced that system firsthand, someone like Sally Pipes. So I had the chance to talk to her about Canadian healthcare. Yeah, so I've also heard that some people hold the belief that the Canadian system is a much better system than ours. It's a system that really works. Is that something that Sally Pipes addresses in the interview? Absolutely. So there is a perception that Canadian healthcare system works great. So Canada has what they call a single-payer healthcare system, where the government basically pays for everyone's healthcare bills. And, you know, we hear a lot that this is a great, great system, but in the interview, Sally Pipes talks about you know, the, the quality of health care that is available under such a system and the long waiting times. And she even describes her own personal experience, a very harrowing experience that her own mother faced um, under the Canadian health care system. So, yeah, she definitely talks about what life under the Canadian health care system, what life under socialized medicine really looks like. That sounds really interesting. Let's have a listen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, I would like to talk to you about Canadian healthcare today. I've heard that you describe yourself as a refugee of the Canadian healthcare system. Um, what was your experience like in the Canadian healthcare system? Well, I grew up in Canada. I'm um, Canadian. I'm still a Canadian, but I um, became an American citizen in December of '06. But when I was offered the job of running the Pacific Research Institute in the summer of 1991, I took a giant leap at the chance because I wanted to get out of Canada and in particular be a refugee of the Canadian healthcare system. You know, we had seen um, a, tremendous, um, um, a tremendous cutback in the quality of healthcare in Canada, ability of people to find doctors, get tests, care had been rationed, long waiting lists had developed. And so, um, you know, I, it didn't seem that there was going to be any way that Canada was going to change um, their healthcare system. They have what we call a single-payer Medicare-for-all system, where private health care in Canada is outlawed um, by the government. We talked to John Goodman a couple weeks ago on our podcast, and he described that the American health care system was actually similar, very similar to Canada's. Is, do you agree with that assessment? Is that, would that be an accurate way to describe it? Well, I think um, as someone, as I say, who grew up under the Canadian health care system and 
how, you know, in, in Canada, you, you don't call up a, an ophthalmologist or an OBGYN. You have to go through a gatekeeper. And the tremendous, and we can talk later about the length of waits, um, cancer survival rates and things like that. I would say the one part of the Canadian healthcare system that is similar to the American healthcare system is the VA, the Veterans Administration. They're both single-payer government-run systems. Now, it is true that 50% of healthcare in the United States is in the hands of government through not only the VA, but Medicare, Medicaid, and the CHIP program for children. So we don't have a free market um, in healthcare in this country. But on the other hand, I think I've had a tremendously positive experience, as have most of my friends and family in the United States, on access to care. Um, care is expensive, but America is a wealthy nation, um, and Americans expect the best, and they expect it now. So I, you know, in my book, The Pipes Plan, the Top Ten Ways to Dismantle and Replace Obamacare, there are a number of things that can be done in this country to bring about affordable, accessible, quality health care for all. But I would, I would, be, um, I would not say that the American health care system, um, for the most part, resembles uh, that, of, that of Canada, except for the VA. And as I say, 50% of health care is in the hands of government through those programs, government programs. So in Canada, you're saying it's it's like Medicare for all. So everyone, when they go to the doctor, the government pays the bill. That's correct? So what happens is that the federal government has the Canada Health Act, but each province gets transfer payments from the federal government to run their provincial health care programs. And it is Medicare for all. It's single payer. Private health insurance is outlawed. Doctors work for the um, for their provincial medical society, and the bills are paid by the provincial government um, in the province in which they're operating. So doctors' um, fees are limited by according to the fee schedule set by um, the provincial government. In many cases, doctors um, do not have increases for several years because a province may have a deficit. Um, if you are the best um, neurosurgeon or you're the worst, you're paid the same. And so, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very much like... A union. It's very much as if doctors in Canada are members of unions, and there's no reward for excellence. So why is private insurance outlawed? I mean, why isn't it like a public option where you can still have private options as well? Well, one of the issues in the negotiations for um, the Affordable Care Act, um, as you know, which on March 23rd is you know celebrates its third. Uh, birthday, um, one of the issues in the House side was to have a public option which would compete against private insurers in these uh, state-based exchanges. The Senate um, over overturned the public option, and so as a result, right now, there is no public option in the Affordable Care Act. But in looking at Canada, when Canada, when the government, the government started, the Saskatchewan government was the the, the provincial government that started the takeover of health care uh, by the government in the in the 1940s under um, the late uh, Premier Tommy Douglas, who, um, according to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, deemed him to be um, the um, Canada's most, you know, the greatest Canadian. Um, and of course, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is a government-run radio and television operation in Canada. But it started in the 40s in Saskatchewan. It spread to the country as a whole under uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and the government took over the whole healthcare system, doctors and hospitals, in the in the 70s. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons why I believe that there was um, no competition, why the public option was not, you know, there, was because Great Britain, in Great Britain, 
the government took over the health care system. They set up the National Health Service in the 1940s, but they allowed private health care to run parallel to the National Health Service. And today, about 10% of Brits have private health insurance um, under, in, in the UK, and it, it, it's very popular. Um, when Canadian officials went to Great Britain and said, what are the things that you... What are the mistakes that you feel that you made when you set up the National Health Service? And the most, um, the most common complaint was that they allowed private health care to run parallel to the National Health Service um, because people could compare. And so when Canada set up their um, Medicare system, they said, we will have everybody will be, you know, so on a so-called level playing field and everybody will have universal coverage and it will be run by um, the, gov- the government, and in particular by the provincial governments. Was there any opposition to this at the time? I, it, I, I don't know, but it's highly unlikely because um, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau um, was, a, was really, to get down to it, really a communist. He was a, a great fan of, you know, he wrote this famous article, Cité Libre, uh, which is, you know, um, about, you know, government takeover of things. He really believed government... He's really actually a communist who believes that government should control all of the lives of Canadians in every aspect. And so, you know, I think it was it would have been very difficult um, to, um, you know, to have done anything else um, to bring about a private option in the Canadian healthcare system. Although it is interesting, back um, in 2003, um, there was a, a court case in the province of Quebec, are really where most of the French Canadians live, where um, there was a case that made it to the Canadian Supreme Court, and it was um, over the issue of the ban on private health insurance. Um, and so, in that decision, and you know, the Canadian Supreme Court is not, you know, really, it's not a um, uh, um, conservative court at all. But Madam Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, in her decision, um, in, fa- in favor of allowing private health care in the province of Quebec, said that the ban on private health care and private insurance in the province of Quebec was illegal because Quebecers did not have um, the security of person, which is part of the Canadian uh, Constitution. And so in that case, in Quebec, um, private health care can, can, is, is, um, is, is, is allowed under 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 the under the law, but um, Madam Justice, uh, Madam Chief Justice McLaughlin said, "Yes, Canada has universal coverage, but access to a waiting list is not access to health care." And so I think this is this is a very important point. And I think Americans, you know, my mother used to say um, when I moved to the U.S. in '91, and as time went on, she used to say, "I hope you're not becoming one of those impatient Americans." And I think Americans are impatient. They don't want to be told you can't have something when you think you need it. And, of course, Canadians have an escape valve. You know, about 40,000 Canadians a year come out of a population of 33 million come to the United States and pay out of pocket for procedures and treatments that they feel are important and that they can't afford to be in pain or to be on a waiting list. And so they come to the U.S. It is an escape valve for them. But my issue is if we don't... Uh, um, overturn, uh, repeal, and replace Obamacare, um, and it's going to be very difficult to do that between now and the 2016 election in in total. But I think you know ultimately the United States, if it's not repealed and replaced, will also be on 
a path to a single-payer Medicare-for-all system. Insurance companies will be crowded out of the market. And so I say, where will the best doctors go and where will we as patients go in America if the government takes over our health care system? Because, you know, it's, 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 it's going to have the same results as anywhere in the world where, where you have government controlling um, what amount of money is spent on health care. Uh, so you asked where the doctors, where the patients going to go. Is there a country you think that is the next logical place for people to go that is working better? Well, I think um, we have seen some movement in Costa Rica. A lot of American docs are setting up, you know, clinics there, hospitals there, so they would be free of the Affordable Care Act. So that's one. That's one issue. My my idea is to um, set up the Liberty ships, and they would be offshore, and the best doctors would, you know, be on these ships, and we as patients could go there. Um, and I think it's a great idea. But, you know, if you're having a stroke or a heart attack, um, you can't all of a sudden, you know, end up on a ship or get right. to Costa Rica um, or head to India or Singapore where there's a lot of medical tourism going on. But the latest idea in this is, you know, to set up um, for doctors and hospitals to set up their practices on um, Indian reservations. You know, we've seen, um, you know, um, outlet malls like Cabazon, which is east of um, Los Angeles on the way to Palm Springs, there is the big Cabazon outlet mall with all of the top world designers selling, you know, their their wares at this outlet mall. There are um, um, casinos. Um, and so why not be able to, you know, go gambling, go shopping, and get your health care on an Indian reservation? So this is something that, you know, I'm looking into because it would not be quite as difficult as having a heart attack and flying to um, Delhi. So Indian reservations are exempt from a lot of the restrictions? Yes, exactly. So... Um, you know, and when you, you, you know, people think of Indian reservations, oftentimes they think, you know, a lot of poor people, a lot of alcoholism. Um, but, you know, where the Indians have opened up their land to these um, uh, shopping malls and casinos, you see a lot of, you know, um, um, cleanliness and things getting much better. So I think, you know, the market, if it were allowed to work, you know, would work. And I, I think this would be a tremendous um, option for, for us. So getting back to Canada, I mean, there's always this debate going on as to what is the which, which country is the better healthcare system. And there's so many different metrics people bring up, you know, access or quality of care or survival rates or birth, uh, you know, survival at birth. I mean, what metrics do you use to make that judgment as to what's the better healthcare system? Well, you know, as as somebody who has, you know, as I said, grown up under the Canadian healthcare system, the government, you know, decided that, you know, they would have a Medicare for all system. Everybody would, you know, get all the treatment they needed, the best treatment when they wanted it. But what the government didn't um, expect was that when people think something is free, um, they demand more of it. And, of course, so the demand went way up, the costs went way up, and the government said, well, we're going to have to set a global budget and say how much money we are going to spend as a percent of GDP on health care. So the government in Canada today spends about 11.4% of gross domestic product on health care. Um, here in America, we're spending around 18% of our GDP. Probably it is the most expensive um, health care in the world. But if you look at Canada and spending 11.4%, you know, um, and the demand being greater, what happens? Well, you get um, long waiting lists for care, lack of access to care, uh, to the latest treatments and procedures, and ration care. And so today in Canada based on the research done by the Fraser Institute, where I worked for many years before coming to the U.S., they produced a publication called Waiting Your Turn, A Guide to Hospital Waiting List. 
And, um, you know, the wait um, in uh, 2011 from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist was 19 weeks. That's almost five months. Now, you know, that that is a metric that is, is very worrying, in particular if you're in pain or you think you have um, a serious um, a serious illness. Um, in, in fact, my own mother, who in the summer of 2005 felt that she had colon cancer, um, she went to her primary care doctor who felt around and said, well, he didn't think so, but he ordered an x-ray. Now, for people, you know, in the know, an x-ray does not reveal colon cancer. And so I called her back and said, well, you have to, you know, you really need to get a colonoscopy. That will be the, the final determin- determinant of whether or not you have colon cancer. And so she called her, bo- her doctor back and said, my daughter says I need to have a colonoscopy. And her doctor said, well, at your age as a senior, uh, we can't get you a colonoscopy because we have so many younger people who have severe symptoms who are on a waiting list for the colonoscopy. So by uh, late November, my mother had lost 35 pounds, and she called me one Sunday morning and said she was hemorrhaging. And so I was able to get her to the hospital in an ambulance, the only way she could get into the emergency room. Um, And she spent two days there, two days in the transit lounge waiting for a bed in a ward. Now, my mother did get her colonoscopy, and she died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. It's cheaper to deny care by the government than to, you know, increase the number of doctors and specialists and machines that do these types of tests. And so, you know, that's a way to ration care, and it resulted in, you know, her passing. So I think, you know, this is something that I don't want to see happen in in America. We also, in Canada... Um, There are long waiting, as I say, long waiting lists for treatment. In 2011, 941,000 Canadians out of a population of 33, 34 million were waiting to get treatment, and 17% of Canadians are waiting to get a primary care doctor. So when you hear President Obama say, we can reduce the cost of health care in this country if we had more primary care doctors, well, a lot of docs don't want to go into primary care for a number of reasons. It's low-paying. You actually don't do a lot of uh, procedures because you refer to specialists. And so um, we're not going to see – we know, according to the um, um, the American Academy of uh, Physicians, um, that, uh, that you know the, there will be a shortage of 91,000 primary care doctors and general surgeons in this country um, by, by 2019. People are not going to go into it, and the demand for care is going to be greater. So – you know, it's a it's a myth to think that everyone in Canada gets care when they want it because they don't. And then you have issues such as, you know, life expectancy, infant mortality, where groups such as WHO, the World Health Organization, the Commonwealth Fund, OECD, do these surveys of of, of quality of healthcare systems. And they always say, oh, the United States is number 37 or number 39. It falls below Cuba, Morocco. Right. Uh, and you know, but you have to. These surveys all look at does a healthcare system treat people equally as opposed to treating people well? And so, when you take out um, from the U.S. statistics homicide deaths per capita, um, in, uh, deaths from car accidents per capita, obesity issues, all of these things, when you take them out, longevity in the United States is actually number one in the world. And the other point is, if you look at the Lancet Oncology statistics on cancer survival rates five years after diagnosis, the United States is the number one country in the world on 13 of 16 
uh, most common cancers because we do have, you know, availability. The latest um, treatments and procedures are developed in this country because we don't have a government-run system. There is an incentive for drug companies and medical device companies to, you know, do the research and development that allows for, you know, these 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 um, treatments to be available for us. So I mean, you mentioned that the you know we Canada spends a lower percentage of its GDP on healthcare costs than America. Um, so is that I mean, from what what you're saying, I'm getting that is it that they just decide okay, we're not going to deliver more than a certain amount of care, and so if you've got a lot of people who who want care, then they just have to wait longer. So that's basically how they're paying by waiting. Yes, you're paying by waiting, and and you know you know governments always. You know, and you know, have have to ration the dollars they have unless they want to tax people more. And Canadians are taxed to death, and so I think you know they the people just would not tolerate you know higher even higher taxes. So they had to um, set this limit. And the other thing is that politicians, of course, you know, if you live in a certain city and you're a politician, you you may think that your your um, um, the people in your uh, district, you know, they want other government programs. They want, um, you know, daycare. They want, um, you know, more money for food stamps. Always, there's always these competing visions, and so government has to allocate. And so that's why, you know, they set a limit on what they're going to spend on health care, and you have these, these problems that we've just talked about. So do you think that that is a useful metric then to compare healthcare systems, how much a country spends on GDP, uh, on healthcare costs per GDP, or do you not see that as a useful statistic? Or in other words, should we be aiming for Canada's 11%? Well, I don't think we should. I mean, the United States, I don't even know if 18% of GDP is, is too much. Perhaps it's too little. You know, I'm part of the baby boom generation. We've got a huge group of people are going to be approaching retirement over the next few years. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of pressure on, on the healthcare system um, for 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 care, and particularly people going into Medicare, the program for seniors. And so, you know, maybe we should maybe we should be spending more. As I said, Americans are impatient; they want the best. We have very high incomes in this country relative to to other com- com- countries. So if you if you start cutting back, um, I think you know you're going to see a decline in the quality. Of, of life and the quality of, of, of health care. So, you know, what is the right number? I don't know, but I do know that there are ways to cut the cost of health care um, in this country, and it's not by um, increasing the role of government in our health care system. So what is the state of Canadian health care today? You mentioned Quebec now private health care is allowed. Is that Are we seeing, you know, better results in Quebec, and what about the rest of the country? Well, um, I... There have been a lot of problems with the the private, you know, um, healthcare in in Quebec. But the Westmount Medical Clinic is is alive and well and is is um, very popular and used a lot in Quebec. There are a number of um, doctors who have set up clinics in Canada illegally to provide private healthcare. I'm Dr. Brian Day in Vancouver, who runs the Canby Clinic. It's an orthopedic clinic, very very successful. But it is illegal, and in fact, he is being sued by the provincial government for going against going against the law but you know the people do go there and they they pay out of pocket because they're in pain and they they want to you know get results the other option is coming to the United States and paying and probably even paying at a higher rate and so in the province of Alberta which is the most conservative of of the Canadian provinces they have a lot of doctors who've set up private clinics in competition and being 
you know, a conservative province, um, they have not been shut down. Um, my um, my question is, you know, um, Stephen Harper, who is from Alberta, who is the Prime Minister of Canada, he's very conservative. He's got the deficit and the debt under control in a much better way in Canada now than in the U.S. But, you know, in talking to people about, you know, why hasn't he done anything about the problems with the Canadian healthcare system, apparently um, he wants change to come from the bottom up rather than the top down. And so I think, you know, over time we're going to see um, the opening up of, you know, private clinics and things without without having government intruding like they are in the province of British Columbia. So I think that is one issue. I think, you know, people say, well, why aren't there riots in the streets among Canadians if they don't like, you know, the weights? So when Decima does polling of average Canadians, what do they think of the healthcare system? If you don't have to use the healthcare system other than for basic, you know, colds and sore throats and things, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's fine. But if when you poll Canadians who need to see a specialist um, and they find out what the weight is from seeing your uh, primary care doctor to um, seeing a specialist to then getting treatment by a specialist, the dissatisfaction rate is incredibly high. And so those those are the, the those are the stats that we need we need to look at. The other point is that you know, the, as I said, the Canadian healthcare system was taken over by the government in 1974. I mean, that's 26, 36, you know, almost 40 years ago. People in Canada don't know any different. I mean, you know, when you grow up with something, if you don't know an alternative, you think it's fine. And the third point is, Canadians are nice people. They're not. They're they're very patient people. And so that if they're told something, just like Brits, that you know this isn't available, they say, well, thank you very much. I'll go home and wait. Unless you're, you know, one who says, well, I want to take the chance and go to the United States and find out whether I do have a brain tumor or I do have melanoma or whatever. So you know, it's a Canada is a different different country, but I think you are going to see under Prime Minister Harper some, you know, opening up of the healthcare system because it, it, it the waiting times are getting worse. At 19 weeks from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist, that's the longest wait in the history of the waiting list being taken um, in Canada, and it's 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 you know it, it's worrying. So why is it getting worse? Is it simply that the population size is increasing? Well, I think, yes, it is. And, and, you know, the best and the brightest kids don't go into medicine. And and as we're going to see in this country, um, unless Obamacare is repealed and replaced, A, we're seeing that a lot of doctors, you know, are going to take early retirement. Um, A lot of doctors are just retiring. And we're going to see, um, I think, the best and the brightest kids, you know, deciding not to go into medicine because they see it as, you know, a profession that will be controlled uh, by the government. And so we will see um, shortages, um, just like in, in a country like Canada. Is there evidence to suggest that? Or is it a lot of anecdotal um, evidence that a lot of the smarter people are not choosing to go into medicine, both here and in Canada? Well, I've seen um, some um, um, surveys in the United States showing that the best and the brightest kids are not going into medicine. Um, because we have the MCAT results. But we also have had surveys done by the Physicians Foundation, uh, Deloitte Touche, the consulting firm, um, which has shown that, you know, about um, 69% of doctors surveyed are not optimistic about the future of medicine under Obamacare. And the Physicians Foundation did a survey with similar results, but they also did a survey of doctors under the age of 40 showing that, you know, 69% of them are very worried about the future of their of their profession, and those are the docs under forty are the 
doctors that have just been out of school, you know, for a shorter period of time, particularly if you have done a residency in a specialty, you probably didn't finish till 32, 33. And so they are very worried. You know, 49% of graduating specialists are now joining hospitals. They're not going into into fee-for-service medicine, setting up their own, um, you know, practices or a small group practice. So that I think that those those statistics are um, are very worrying about for the future. I'm interested to learn more about you know the mentality of Canadians in this system. I mean, you mentioned that tens of thousands of Canadians come to America every year for treatment. Now, is that something that they can you talk about proudly, or is that something, you know, it's a hush-hush practice? What What is that like? Well, I think, you know, um, a lot. there has been a lot of um, um, stories in the Canadian press about interviews of Canadians who have come to the U.S. for treatment, whether it's um, someone with a brain tumor, with, um, you know, various types of cancer. I mean, when you think back, when the Canadian healthcare system was fairly young, I mean, um, the Premier of Quebec, Robert Bourassa, when he was diagnosed with uh, melanoma in Montreal, you know, back in the day, the um, the Montreal General and the Royal Vic, those were world-class hospitals, but they have deteriorated significantly because the, the they don't have the latest equipment, the, the unions are very much in control, the hospitals are are dirty. And so um, Bourassa went, came to Washington, D.C. and had his treatment um, at the National Cancer Institute. John Turner, who was a liberal um, 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 uh, minister of finance in the Trudeau government, he ran for, he was the leader of the Liberal Party. Um, he had a private doctor in the United States. A lot of, you know, people, you know, like that, you know, it's interesting that politicians would come to the U.S. and, and in a few years ago, um, 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 the uh, Denny uh, Williams, the premier of the province of Newfoundland, the most easterly province in, in Canada, when he was told that he had a severe heart um, issue that needed needed surgery, he was told, well, there's not a hospital here in Newfoundland that can do it. The waiting list in Ontario was very long and would be harmful to his health. So Danny Williams, you know, packed his bag, went to Mount Sinai Hospital in Miami, uh, Florida, and had his heart surgery done. He came back and was, you know, harassed by the Canadian media. How could you possibly, you know, go to um, the United States, to Florida, and have your surgery? And Danny Williams said, it's my heart, it's my health, it's my choice. You know, and, you know, that's important. People want choice, and, and they want, if it's if it's your health, and, you you know, you're going to, you know, be um, threatened with, you know, the ultimate thing, death, I mean, you want to be able to have access to that. And that's why, you know, I'm so passionate about, repeal and replace of Obamacare and actually building a healthcare system that will reduce cost and lead to universal coverage because neither of those goals are going to be achieved under President Obama's healthcare plan. And of course, those were his two main visions, um, you know, in, in introducing the idea of the Affordable Care Act. So when, when, the, you know, they were debating uh, Obamacare and they were debating, you know, what should be in it, what should the law look like. There's a lot of comparison made to other countries and the models they have for health care. So uh, Obamacare, as it ended up, did they derive anything from uh, Canada, from how Canada works? Well, I, uh, there were so many people that I've talked to that were involved in the writing of the legislation that probably that's why it's so discombobulated mm-hmm. because there's so many people wrote and it was done in such a hurry. And as I say, it'll be... Uh, this um, 
um, Saturday is the third anniversary of the Affordable Care Act, but the problems are unraveling now, as we've seen, with the exchanges, with the employer mandate, the individual mandate, the cost of insurance, all of these things are, you know, going to be difficult. I think the president himself, you know, has said back in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, that, you know, he he said that he was a proponent of a single-payer Medicare for All system, which, of course, is what um, following in the footsteps of the late Senator Ted Kennedy. So I think he is a proponent. I think his ultimate goal for America is you know, to make it very difficult for private insurers to survive, to crowd out private insurers, and then we all will be left in a um, Medicare for all system. I think that's his, his long-term goal, and I think many other people see that as what, what he wants to. It's an ideological vision that, you know, the United States is built on, built on limited government personal responsibility, but people like President Obama and Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker of the House, they really believe in a vision that government can make decisions for us better than we can make for ourselves. And that is not the American way, but I think the ultimate goal that they see is, of course, um, government, complete government takeover of our health care system. So you think that that ideology is so blinding to them? I mean, because you're describing a single-payer system in Canada, and it sounds just awful. Who would ever want to be in that system? Yet you the ideology, would you say that is what is, you know, really driving them towards it in the face, you know, against all the facts? I, I absolutely think so. That's their 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 guiding mission. I mean, um, remember when Nancy Pelosi, 11 days before the legislation was signed, said we have to pass this bill so that we can find out what's in it. I mean, that was a very frightening statement by me. We are now finding out what's in it. And as I see in finding out what's in it, I think ultimately... Um, and probably, you know, early next year, a lot of Americans are going to find out, you know, what's in it. And they're going to see, you know, that they're not going to be able to keep the insurance that they had and they're not going to be able to keep the doctor that they had as the president had promised them. Um, companies are going to um, drop employer-based coverage because it's going to be very expensive and for them, cheaper to put them into tell their employees to purchase their own insurance in the exchange and they the employer will pay the two thousand dollar per employee fine to the government it's a lot cheaper than spending fifteen thousand a year on a family family plan and so people people are going to find out that you know one of the plans in the exchanges whether it's bronze silver gold or platinum is going to be a lot more expensive than what what they ever thought a lot of young people are going to say you know i'm going to pay that individual uh, penalty at ninety five dollars uh, per person or 1% of income starting right now. And so it's going to put pressure on the cost of insurance for insurance companies to provide insurance in the exchanges, and that's going to push up, and yet the government's going to say you can't have those increases. So I think it's going to be um, a rude awakening for Americans and employers too. I mean, you know, I think a lot of employers are just now beginning to see, you know, what this means, and you're seeing, you know, because if you have 50 or more employees, um, you will be subject to Obamacare. The first 30, of course, would be exempt. But a full-time employee is someone who works 30 hours a week or more. You're seeing, you know, in the service industry, particularly in restaurants, you're seeing a lot saying we're going to have to break up our company into smaller groups. We're going to have to reduce hours to 25, 26, 27 hours a week so as to be these people would be part-time employees rather than full-time. I think you're going to see a lot of that, and, and people are going to say, but, Mr. President, you said if we like your, our health insurance and we like our doctor, nothing will change. And you also told us that the average premium for the average family 
would decline by $2,500 a month. And the Congressional Budget Office said it's going to increase by $2,100 a month. And we've seen actually increases greater than $2,100 a month. So I think this is going to be this is going to be very interesting. You know, the president was very smart. The under the Affordable Care Act, most of the goodies, you know, were given out in 2010, 2011. Children being able to stay on their parents' plans, um, the ending of you know price discrimination um, based on pre-existing conditions being phased out, the the annual limit or cap on what you can you can get you get covered under health care. All of the goodies were then, but the the real cost drivers come into effect next year. And of course he was reelected in November uh twenty twelve. So but we're going to see, you know, the individual mandate, the Medicaid expansion, the the tax subsidies, uh the employer mandate, all of these things are going to be they're the real cost drivers. And this health care law is not going to cost what the president had hoped, nine hundred and forty billion over ten years. It's already the CBO has already said for this year it's going to be about one point three trillion. And I believe by twenty this over 10 years at the decade, you know, 2014 to 2023, we're going to be looking at 2.6, uh, $2.7 trillion over that decade, you know, almost three times what he had promised the American people. And you, I mean, you said before that you think this will definitely lead us on the path to single payer health care. Do you have an idea of how that will might look like specifically where things will go from here? Well, I think, um, you know, right now with the Democrats controlling the Senate, they also have the presidency. They don't have the House. I mean, there are a number of things that, you know, I'm, I'm hoping will happen, but I think they probably won't, things won't be signed by uh, President Obama. You know, repeal of the Independent Payment Advisory Board, repeal of that 2.3% um, tax on medical device sales, which came into being on January 1st of this year. Next year is the HIT tax, the health insurance tax. I mean, these are the new 3.8% tax on unearned income under Medicare, which is part of the Medicare plan, which came into being for people earning 200,000 a year on January 1st, or families at 250. I think um, these are things that could be repealed. There's bipartisan support. Even, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, very Democrat, would like to see. Uh, the 2.3% medical device tax repealed. But, you know, these are some of the things that can be done. Would they pass the Senate? They may. But would the president um, sign the repeal? I I don't know. But, you know, this is his signature issue. So I think it's going to be very difficult. We could, you know, there are a number of members of the House, Republican and Senate, who have, you know, introduced bills to defund the Medicaid expansion and the the tax subsidy for people with an uh, income um, level up to 400% of the federal poverty level. These are things that could be done. Very difficult to get them get through. I think the 2014 um, midterm elections are going to be interesting to see, you know, because people will vote. I think a lot of them will vote thinking about what does this health care mean because it's a very important issue. The 2016 presidential election will be very important if the uh, Republicans take the presidency, uh, keep the House, and take the Senate. You know, we could see early in 2017, you know, legislation introduced to repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act with with market-based um, solutions. So you don't think that it's inevitable at this point that Obamacare is the law of the land, that, you know, this is going to slide us into single payer? You think that there's still um, room and time to scale back? There is, but, you know, if the Democrats take the presidency in 2016 and control either the Senate or the House or both, 
um, I, my, um, my, my phrase is that we will be on the road to serfdom and there won't be um, an off-ramp for us and that this will be the end. So we have the 2014 midterms, we have the 2016 presidential that are sort of, um, I think, my last hope. Because as Milton Friedman, my mentor, used to say to me, Sally, show me a government program that has ever been eliminated. And I think, you know, the mohair subsidy and perhaps one or two other things. But even when people don't like a government program, it's very, very difficult for politicians to pull back and, and um, you know, get rid of them. So, you know, even things that are unpopular tend to be hard to do. So I'm very concerned um, that we don't want to be on the road to serfdom in a Canadian-style uh, system where, as I said before, where will we go? Um, maybe we'll go to Costa Rica. Maybe um, hospitals will set up on Indian reservations. My Liberty ships may become a reality. But it's going to be it's it's going to be a um, a very upsetting uh, time for for Americans and and the future of our healthcare system. And the way Obamacare is set up, you think that the private insurers will eventually be crowded out if nothing is done? Well, you know, when you look at parts of the law, the medical loss ratio, where insurance companies, you know, if you're um, um, can only um, they ha- they can only charge 20% in the small group market, 20 per- an individual small, um, 20% um, to administrative costs, and they have to pay out 80% of the of the um, um, premiums they collect in claims, and it's 15 and 85 in the large group market. Um, this is you know, really putting um, controls on on insurance companies. The other point is that we, you know, if they can't um, increase the premium to cover the cost of, of care, how can you stay in business? And we've seen a number of companies <laughs> already, you know, Principal Financial got out. Um, Aetna is, you know, discontinuing um, individual plans in the in Colorado and Indiana. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on. Um, in terms of, you know, what the future. We also, you know, this health insurance tax, I call it the HIT tax, um, which is going to um, come into effect next year, um, raising more money on, on insurance. You know, insurance companies are going to have to pay this this tax, which ultimately taxes are always passed on to consumers. Um, we're also, you know, seeing the, the pharmaceutical, the tax on pharmaceutical sales will have a negative impact on research and development, I believe. So all of these things are very... Um, uh, frightening for me in the sense that I think, you know, and then, of course, also with an insurance company, the essential benefit plan, what an insurance company has to cover, whether it's vision, dental, uh, um, in vitro fertilizations, all these things, you know, increase the cost. And if you can't increase your premium to cover these costs, why would, how can you stay in business? It's not like government. You don't, you know, send out to your people and, and tax them more. You've mentioned that you know you want to repeal and replace. Um, what are what is your idea? I mean, where should we go from here? How do we get government out or reduce government in healthcare? What is your solution? Well, one of the big problems with our healthcare system is, of course, you know, the employer-based coverage. During World War II, when wage and price controls were in, employers couldn't go out and 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 you know hire new people and increase the wages of the people they had on staff, and so the the government decided that um, that employers could write off the cost of what of providing health care to their employees, and we as employees could get get our health uh, care tax free. Of course, our salaries are slightly lower um, mm-hmm. for those of us who have employer based coverage. But the problem is 
that if you lose your job or you you know quit your job and you go out into the individual market, you have to buy your health insurance with after-tax dollars. So the playing field is not level. Most people who have employer-based coverage have no idea, you know, what what the insurance really costs. I mean, they may pay a copay or part of premium, but that of course isn't the cost of care. And when people think something is inexpensive, they they use a lot more of it. So in the interim, I would like to see the tax code changed so that individuals could purchase their insurance in the individual market with pre-tax dollars as well. I would ultimately like to see us get away from employer-based coverage and build up a competitive market in insurance where we will all own our own insurance. I would like to see doctors and patients being empowered rather than, than the third party, and in particular, um, the, federal, the federal, federal government. We've seen with health savings accounts about 14 million Americans today have HSAs. They're very popular. People shop around. They look at price. Um, and it's really the cost of insurance premiums for people with HSA coverage has gone down because you're putting people in charge. I think the president doesn't like HSAs. We've seen the amount that you can deduct from your flexible savings account has been cut in half to $2,500 starting this year. But that is the way to open up the market. I think you know we need to um, um, get states to reduce those costly mandates that I was talking about. There are about 2,100 around the country. They add 20 to 50 percent of the cost of care. Um, we need states to do medical malpractice reform. The president said over and over again, you know, talk, doctors practice defensive medicine because do all these tests because they want to line their pockets. Well, in fact, doctors practice defensive medicine because they're afraid, afraid of being sued, and they pay a lot for their um, their uh, medical malpractice insurance. So, if we could reduce the number of mandates. If I want a plan that covers in vitro, I should be able to get it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you might not want that, so why should you have to pay for what, what I want? And then, um, you know, I think in the interim, you know, the government under the Affordable Care Act put uh, $5 billion into, you know, allowing people with pre-existing conditions who had been uninsured for six months or more to purchase insurance in the high-risk pools. Mm-hmm. Well, the, t- the take-up was very low, in the first place. But on February 15th, the government discontinued the program because the $5 billion was already used up. I think, you know, if the government were to do something, and I'm not a proponent of government being in this at all, but if they were to do something, they could increase the funding to the state-run high-risk pools until we get a properly functioning market. Mm-hmm. And then we don't need government-run exchanges or pools. We We would empower doctors and patients, and we would have access, we'd have access to, we'd have accessible care, affordable care, and quality care for all Americans, because universal choice is the key to universal coverage, not government mandating, you know, what what we have. Mm -hmm. So I've got one last question for you. Um, You mentioned that the tax code favors employer-sponsored health insurance. Um, This is something I've heard a lot of people talk about, that yet there's this, the playing field isn't level, some people are getting tax, but uh, deductions other people are not i mean why has this been such a difficult issue to, for you know congress to just say well okay everyone can get um he- can get health insurance tax free why why is that so difficult cuz it seems so simple of a i know a it is it is simple and the results are there i think it's because as i said a minute ago once you have a government a government approving a program to change it is is very very difficult and i i just don't know because you have people it's you have bipartisan support for this Mm-hmm. So why it doesn't happen is is beyond me. And you know, with the 
under Obamacare with, you know, the, um, the individual mandate, you know, the IRS is probably, you know, going to have to expand, hire a lot more people to monitor our tax returns to see that we have insurance. So why not, you know, um, you know, get the IRS to make, make this change? It, it, it's astounding to me that, that it has happened, and it should. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Pipes. This has been really, really enlightening, and I'm really excited to share this, you know, all this information with our, with our listeners. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to um, give out my views, which I am so passionate about. You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode is titled, Do Canadians Have It Better? A Conversation on the Future of American Healthcare, with host Rituparna Basu and guest Sally Pipes. You can find more commentary from Ms. Pipes at pacificresearch.org. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.einrandcenter.org or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at einrand.org. I'm Amanda Maxim for Eye to Eye.